this is Fire and Ice podcast here on February, um, bringing you the entrepreneur series on black businesses. Uh, today, I would like to thank WMNF 88.5 FM for allowing me to be here again with my podcast, talking to my family and beyond. So we're going to get right into the entrepreneurial series. Today, I'm going to read a piece from Dr. Claude Anderson out of his book, The A Black History Reader. And it's going to be about the criterias that we need to follow as a black entrepreneur on page 206. Okay, the question was asked, what criteria should black entrepreneurs use to identify the best business opportunities? And here is what he has to say, Dr. Claude Anderson. One of the most common questions asked by aspiring black entrepreneurs is, what business to go into? The answer is a simple one. Willie the actor Sutton an infamous national bank robber, supplied the answer then in the 1950s. He was asked why he robbed banks. Sudden answer, because that is where the money is. Like Willie Sutton, blacks should go into business where the most accessible money is and where they have a distinct competitive advantage. Black Americans have an annual disposable income of over $1 trillion, which is which as a nation within a nation makes them one of the richest nations on earth. Ironically, because they do not aggregate those dollars to build group strength, approximately 98% of their total income is spent in non-Black-owned businesses. The biggest and the most accessible part of money that a Black business owner should have a good chance to capture is the money held in the hands of Black consumers. Blacks should dramatically increase the group benefit of their consumer dollars if Black merchants and Black consumers practice group-based economics using the advantages of home court leverage and the cultural buy-in patterns of their own people. If black Americans practiced economic nationalism and protected their aggregated resources, it wouldn't be so easy for non-black businesses to capture black consumer dollars, and weaken the group socially and economically. That's power, if we could put that into motion. And that's under the black entrepreneurship. And the second part to that is build around black consumer needs and spending patterns. Again, Dr. Claude Anderson Blacks should build businesses around the basic needs of their people, especially in the essential areas of water, food, medicine, health care, and energy. These consumers' essentials 
ought to be readily available in every black community in normal times, but especially during hard times or civil disasters. Further, black businesses ought to produce and sell consumer items that blacks spend a disproportionate amount of their disposable income in purchasing. Numerous marketing firms identify the product categories in which blacks dominate as consumers. For instance, music, cosmetics, fat clothing, hair products, and certain foods. When the society provides you with only lemons, go into the lemonade business. In other words, convert negative group characteristics or conditions into positive business opportunities. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you have it. Dr. Claude Anderson is telling us that in order to address many of our situations, um, we need to have economic empowerment. And one of the ways to achieve that is black entrepreneurship. Yes. So thank you for being here today on the Fire and Ice podcast. Um, this is a entrepreneurship uh series for black businesses. And I thought it would be appropriate to highlight the younger generation. And since you're still in your 20s, you meet that criteria. So thank you for agreeing to do this interview. We're going to get started by asking you to please um, give us a little background about yourself, including where you went to school um, and including your experience in Tampa up until where you are now. So please um, introduce yourself. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me on this morning. It's such an honor to get to contribute to your podcast. Uh, my name is Merrick Jackson. Um, I am 29 years old, currently residing in the triad area of North Carolina. I went to East Carolina University starting in 2011, go Pirates. Um, I was born in Pensacola, Florida, uh, raised pretty much primarily in Tampa. Um, when I grew up in Tampa, um, kind of some of that culinary experience that started me on this journey um, was working at a country club for a short period of time and engaging with some of my neighbor's businesses. So from an early age, I saw that someone could be their own boss. It wasn't something I'd pursue until later in life, um, but I definitely knew at that moment it was a reality that some people could take hold of. Okay, so um, I think I would like for you to, because this is really about the locals, I, I, I'd like for you to explain to them your connection to Tampa and the schools that you went to here, and then you had to, um, of course, um, move to North Carolina, where you reside now with your parents. And then once you became an adult, you went into um, entrepreneurship. Will you give us a little bit of history of your time here in Tampa, please? Yes, of course. So I went to uh, Liberty Middle School and Freedom High School when I was living in Florida, Um some of the experiences that I had, we lived in the Tampa Palms area, if anyone's familiar with that new Tampa. Um, and it really shaped how I viewed food and culture. You know, I was completely surrounded by an extremely diverse population. Uh, so that embarked on me 
kind of this need to be part of a one whole community where some not everyone has to look the same, but where we're always trying to grow and help each other. You know, ever as people move to this country, it's you know sometimes it's a lot of hardship. Sometimes they find a lot of new success. So it's so interesting getting to cultivate relationships with those people and grow amongst their stories. You know, growing up, two of my best friends, one was from Egypt and one was from India. Um, and we all grew up there in Tampa together. Um, you know, uh, something that definitely played a huge influence on my life is being right in the shadow of USF, uh, the University of South Florida. You know, I got to spend a lot of time walking that campus and seeing what life was like trying to be a minority in a large city such as Tampa. You know, and the clearly the economic divides in between different areas in the city. And I wanted to always make an impact on that local community when I was a part of it. Oh, okay. So that's, that's very interesting. So basically you, you said you have always been around entrepreneurship. Um, so your inspiration, was it shaped or inspired by particular people? Um, you know, introduce um, your inspiration around entrepreneurship and tell us how was that shaped? Yes, of course. So one of my first kind of introductions into what an entrepreneur could be um, was my neighbor, Miss Ann Inniwicki. Um, She runs a clothing business called Electra. Um, so she inspired me by showing me, you know, she operated at first her business out of her house till it grew into a much larger scale. Um, and then some of the other highlights that really dawned on me was meeting other caterers and people who run restaurants. You know, they, they always aspired to create the food and create the experiences for their guests that they always desired. And that wasn't always possible in a corporate setting. You know, so breaking out on their own and creating their own concept is really what inspired me getting into my businesses, looking at, you know, the things that I wanted to change in the working environment. You know, I worked in corporate food for many a year. And I, I was eye-opening. It was eye-opening to find out the struggles that people had. And I think some of those struggles were directly impl implied to them by who they worked for. You know, and I always wanted to change that. I wanted to create a better world and a better job environment for people to come into. And it really hit home with me when I saw that people could run their own, run their own and operate their own businesses and really make that direct impact on their employees' lives. That's excellent. Um, so with that knowledge um, and and moving forward 10 years, um, five, seven years ahead, can you introduce the two businesses that you are involved in? And we're going to try to unpack it one at a time. So um, just let us know what businesses have gotten your attention and that you have become an entrepreneur uh, in, please. Yes, of course. So I got my degree in hospitality management. So the first the first entrepreneurship venture I took on was a catering company. Um, I worked in the hospitality sector for a little over a decade, and I really gained a wealth of experience and knowledge. And people tell me I'm quite talented. Uh, so when I broke into entrepreneurship, I created a company called Downriver Kitchen, which was a chef service. And also we provide um spice blends we made marinades and sauces additionally doing weddings and larger corporate events as well and then with the same moniker i chose the name downriver home uh, for my real estate business so i am a north carolina real estate broker 
I try to be the economist of choice in my local market, and then I study the nationwide economics of the real estate. Um, So I started the catering business because of my experience in the hospitality sector, and then I broke into real estate because one of my long-term dreams was to own rental properties and manage vacation rentals. That's very interesting. So um, I guess it would be... um... Interesting to know how, what was your walk through starting your business as a caterer? How, how did that develop? And then how did you do your crosswalk over to your second business? So unpack the catering for us. What was the steps of becoming an official business of catering? Yeah, of course. Well, like most people who worked in the hospitality sector, COVID hit my industry very hard. You know, I found myself in a position of, is there a way to keep working the way we've been working under the scrutiny and turmoil that we are experiencing? And I definitely noticed a quality of life change, you know, coming into COVID and actually not in a negative way, in a positive, you know, my whole time in the hospitality field, you know, I was working 40 plus hours a week, every week, you know, I never really got to see my family or friends. Um, I never had a weekend off. So most of my job experience was completely different than the typical nine to five. Um, and it wasn't until COVID hit, you know, everyone goes home and, you know, we're working from home, we're doing what we can, and we're working a little bit more standardized schedule um, that I realized the freedom that I was missing out on. You know, I saw the opportunity due to COVID that I could really create something of my own. Um, so I resigned from my corporate position and moved into entrepreneurship. I knew kind of going into um, a business mind of thinking, you know, it is easier to pursue something that you are currently involved in than it is to start a completely new path. So I took the skill set that I had and created a business out of that. Um, I had been doing corporate catering and managing restaurants. So I was like, how during COVID, I was like, how do I bring restaurant to someone in their home? You know, do a privatized experience. So when I first got started, a lot of what I was doing was corporate, or sorry, was not corporate, but um, private chef dinners. So I would do multi-course meals, you know, three, five, up to 15 courses uh, prepared for someone in their home for a small gathering. Um, that then expanded into a larger business in which we were doing corporate catering and weddings. And then the spinoff was the Spice Line. So to kind of get started in that, you know, we can go like the simple principles of business. You know, you got to get a bank account. You got to register your LLC. You have to get an EIN number. You know, you open different um, product lines with your different vendors, such as Uline, US Food, Cisco. So you have to start by getting your um, supplies in place and also getting your business registered. Um, so once you are registered, kind of in the food side of things, you're going to need to get a commissary space. Uh, So we went and got a commissary space, uh, which is a shared utilized kitchen, which has all the equipment that you need. Um, You'll then get approved by a health inspector here in North Carolina. So we had to get a building, get supplies. And then from there, I'd like to get in there. Um, Go back to that shared commissary kitchen space, because people don't necessarily understand that you might have someone out there that's, you know, that information you just shared would help them. So could you please unpack that? Um, Because people do think um, a lot of the businesses are held up because they don't have operating space or cooking space. So what does that look like? And, and where would you look to find that? 
Yeah, of course. So a commissary kitchen is a usually a shared kitchen space. So they'll have multiple rooms and tables and then shared equipment. So all of your ovens, stovetops, range, flat grills, all of that will be available to everyone. And then you'll have your own unique area um, to prepare your food. Uh, most people, when they're starting a food business, think they need a restaurant. And that's not the case. You know, you can't really be cooking in your house legally, um, but you can find a cheaper alternative using a shared kitchen space. And here in North Carolina, we refer to them as commissary kitchens. Um, kind of, and it's also a cheaper alternative than going to a food truck because coincidentally, most people don't realize if they want to start a food truck business, that's not your kitchen. Most food truck businesses are legally required to be attached to a commissary. So knowing that, I knew the launching point was I'm going to need some sort of official kitchen to operate the business out of. So Very as you're setting up and you decide you want to do a food business, you need a I'm food safe area to produce the food in so you can legally sell it. Something happened. Oh, okay. That yeah, that's very important um, information there. So, what would you um, when you put a uh, structure? What would you um, say? How much would that cost? You know, uh, monthly, annually, quarterly? If someone was interested in having uh, a commissary kitchen attached to like a food truck or a catering service. What is your experience in the cost factor? Yeah, so looking at cost, our commissaries have different kinds of leases. You know, it is essentially paying rent for a operational hub. So you can do one of the leases we were on was a limited to 20 hours a month. So essentially we could be in there five hours a week to prep ingredients and then we could take it and go. And that was about $800 a month. Um, if you wanted to do a more full-time setup, you were looking at about thirty-two dollars to $3,500 a month. And then if you wanted to rent your own private suite, you were somewhere in the ballpark of $4,000 to $5,000 a month. A month for a commissary kitchen, $4,000? Yes. Oh, okay. So oh, that's interesting. So now you have your catering business and things are going well. You um, were able to weather covid and so you're, you have a, a trajectory upward. So the funding, how did you fund catering? And what monies did you use to start your second business, which is the real, the real estate business? Yeah, of course. So to start an entrepreneurship, an advice that I have to everyone, and it, it is going to be the toughest pill to swallow, but it is something you have to do. You do need to take a real look at yourself, how you spend money and what your intentions are, because the most important thing is always going to be saving. If you're going to break into any business, I would say at minimum, you need three months worth of living income saved up. But the safest play is to have six months of income saved up to operate your business. So you would create a business plan to figure out about what your operating expenses would be. And there's a lot of great resources out there that can tell you the expected profit margins of your business and the line that you're getting into. You know, do a heavy amount of research for what your overhead costs are going to be. And when I say overhead costs, I mean like what you anticipate your operating expenses are going to be. So before you even get into business, you need to put together a business plan and look at what your costs are going to be and make sure you have enough money saved up to pursue those things. Um, I knew going into resigning from my position, I was going to need to begin saving. 
Um, so when I made the decision to resign from my job a few months prior, you know, I had started taking a sum from every paycheck and putting it to the side. So I was like, I'm going to have to use this to start my business. Um, so I'll say for me, my living expenses at the time were around $1,500 a month. Um, and I knew that operationally, you know, pre getting a commissary kitchen, but I knew to do the private chef dinners. I was going to be looking at operation expenses between five and $800 a month. And then the commissary kitchen on the short-term lease was going to be about a thousand dollars a month. Okay. So all combined, I knew I knew. Okay. So, so what you're saying is that, um, when a person decides to be an entrepreneur, um, they need to go into that industry and figure out what they need in terms of equipment, materials, and their own personal living experience in order to, um, at least for three months, but it's just better to have three to six months when you want to start your business. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes. Okay. Uh, you definitely want to have some sort of savings and you need a realistic outlook on the money that you're going to spend because it costs money to be in business, mm -hmm. you know, and especially when you're starting out, turning a profit is difficult. You know, you're going to spend a lot of money on marketing and materials and all of your startup costs. So if you don't have some savings in the bank, you'll, you know, find a roadblock hurdle that you can't overcome something as simple as, oh, I really need a strainer to do this pasta um, event that I have going on. and I don't have any money to buy the strainer. Okay, so yeah. so that that's interesting because entrepreneurship is supposed to lead to job creation. So my next question in all of your journeys, your walks um, through the catering company that we're still um, discussing, uh, have you hired employees? Do you have um, contractors? How? Because I'm sure catering is not a one-man band thing. So what did you do in terms of getting help? And was it paid help or uh, volunteer, creative? How how does that look in your catering business? Yeah. So for starters, I knew almost immediately that it was more work than one person could take on. Mm -hmm. um, so I looked for someone who I could do, I could handle the kitchen side and the numbers and then I needed someone to handle the front of house uh, guest service experience. So I looked for a partner who specialized in weddings and events. So I brought them in and cut them in at a percentage rate salary um, based on performance. And then as we looked for additional hands for jobs, we started by using temporary labor. So there's a lot of labor force services that'll let you hire temporary employees. And then as you're looking more forward to the future, when your bottom line can handle it, you know, you can start looking at some part-time work and then expanding into full-time employees. Um, I definitely think you need to always have a budget in mind for what you're going to pay those people because a person is going to produce value to your business regardless of necessarily what you have them doing. Um, but you need to have a plan to make sure you can compensate them for the work that they're producing for you. And then in line with that, when you are paying them or compensating them for the work, you need to make sure that work that you're paying for is generating a profit for the business. So how much of your business that you you train your employees or you train the type of person in your business that you you will need to help you go to the next level? So I think it's part training and part accountability. Mm -hmm. So training, you know, is usually a 90 day process. So you have, the, you know, you no one ever fully understands the scope of what you're having them do from the outset. 
you know, especially as you're starting a new business, roles grow and expand as time goes on. You might need more out of somebody. Uh, so I think it always starts with setting a good expectation and putting people on a 90 day onboarding plan. So setting outlining tasks that they'll need to complete in the first 30 days, things like their W-2 paperwork and making sure you have their background and they understand the job, you get their auto pay set up and make sure you have some way to invoice yourself for their labor. You know, in that next 60 days, you want to make sure they're grasping the concept, performing at a high level and really holding them accountable to the structure of the job they learned that first month. And then in that last 30 days, but encompassing that first 90 days, you're really dialing in on their performance. You know, is this person a culture fit for my company? Is this person generating value? Is this person helping me turn a profit? You know, so I think it usually takes about 90 days to get a good feel on how an employee is going to work for you um, and also how you're going to manage them. Then the next piece in that first 90 days is accountability. You have to be accountable to the actions that you are giving them to do and also following up with them on the performance they are putting out. You know, if you are not holding your employees accountable, you cannot be upset with them for a lack of performance. So it's a two way street. You have to train them, but also hold them accountable, follow up with them and manage them. Great. So um, that's very good information for our um, community that's listening. I, I want to walk back a little bit and talk about, I think you're using the same concept because it's a, the best practice concept for both of your business. But I want to know which business do you find that is more aligned with your skill set and what you enjoy the most? Yeah, of course. Um, I love food. You know, I'm a child of the South. I grew up in a farming family. You know, my mother and her family are all tobacco farmers. So I've always had this extreme tie to nature and to the land that produces our vegetables. You know, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to create machinations of my imagination with the ingredients that God gave us on this earth. Um, so I'm extremely passionate about food, um, but also the greater passion in me lies in knowing that the American dream is out there and it's, you know, not fully taken advantage of by our communities. You know, members of minority society actually own less houses than our counterparts. So when it came to real estate, I really wanted to be a catalyst for change in what I saw in the world and create opportunities for African-Americans and other minority groups to be first-time homeowners, to be real estate investors, and really take advantage of what it means to be a homeowner in this country. That's great. It seemed like you took it to the next level, though. You became a broker. What what um, made you decide to do that? How um, how did you come from just selling houses or uh, helping people to buy houses to going into the broker field? Um, elaborate that because that's the next level. Yeah. No. I I did not receive the best treatment when I was going to buy my first house, which actually negated me from buying a house altogether. You know, and I won't say that there was any implications that provided my bad service, but I did not get a great experience. And I know if someone like me had a tough time. I know there's thousands, if not millions of people in this country that were struggling with the same thing. You know, simply trying to do a simple task of creating shelter and providing a roof over my family's head and I was getting pushback and not being able to reach my goal of doing that. So once I realized there was an opportunity to be able to facilitate people getting into homes and creating wealth for 
uh, minority families, you know, I looked into the steps to get that done. So here in North Carolina, you can pursue a broker's license, which allows you the ability to train, um, write and sell contracts for real estate property anywhere in the state. So I wanted to take it to the next level to make sure I could provide the assistance for anybody um, to get the home of their dreams, you know, and really live out the American dream. That's excellent. That's great. So tell us more about the the real estate side that uh, as an entrepreneur, what have you accomplished in that field and what do you see going on in the future for that? Because um, I, I believe North Carolina is one of those states that has a lot of open land and a lot of houses that either needs to be renovated or there's a lot of um, housing development. Am I correct? Yes. So North Carolina specifically, we have a lot of rich history as it pertains to African-Americans. You know, I currently live in Greensboro, right at the heart of most of what happened in the 60s. And it's crazy to see in our environment what is and isn't possible for members of our community and kind of the misinformation they've had. You know, so but it starts with the trust. You have to gain people's trust so they understand that you're going to do a good job for them. You know, and then building up the community to understand that with good information and the right resources, everything that is possible for anyone else is just as possible for us. It's just going to take a little bit more time. You know, real estate is not a get rich quick scheme. It is a long enduring process and investing in real estate is long term. You know, most mortgages are 30 years. So you are making a long term commitment to your wealth when it comes to taking on a mortgage. And that sometimes is out of sight for our communities to see. You know, we're always thinking week to week, paycheck to paycheck. It's sometimes hard to see, to broaden out and see the scope of what this investment is going to do for you. So I focus on being the economist of choice and educating our communities on how best to inform or buy a home or sell a home or simply invest in real estate. So me personally, in the short time I've been in the real estate field, I've become the vice president of the young professionals uh, for the triad region for Keller Williams. I'm also an assistant team leader here at the Kernersville Market Center in North Carolina. So I take it heavily upon getting people trained in our community to help um, and help others buy and sell homes, but also getting out in the community with first time home buyers, with renters and letting them know the options out there. You know, I partner with a credit repair company. If that's one of the holdups, you know, I can help build savings plans, economic plans, and really help put people on a budget model to get them to their goals. You know, the real thing that you have to focus on is getting people to trust you and then getting them to understand the patience it takes to get there. Great. You know, there are a lot of implicating factors to what it takes to buy a home, but it is possible for everyone. You just have to have the patience to get yourself there. Excellent. So that point alone, that is such a key. If you had to break down the percentage of homeowners in your area um, for uh, black Americans, what would it be, the percentage versus um, compared to someone else? What would that number be? So um, for Caucasians here in North Carolina, it's about 76% home ownership. 76% of Caucasian families own a home. In our African-American communities, it's less than 40%. Okay, so there's um, a opportunity there that's a that's a huge opportunity there if you focus on that and and people agree to want to become home ownership yes that's a 
that's a good place to be. And definitely it's a trust issue and a mindset issue that you have to uh, change um, how people have always done things. You have to change the mindset. That's, that's, um, that's going to be the most difficult part um, um, to do, but it, it needs to be done and it can be done with time. Yeah, and it, it, I love that you said mindset, because when it comes to the patients, that is usually where most people find the holdup. You know, just because you say something is possible, when I say it's possible, I'm not saying it's possible today, right this second. You know, we're going to need to do a forensic investigation on what your current living situation is, what your lifestyle is, and create a plan to get you to home ownership. You know, and there there are some of those scary things that, or there's things that people find scary about the process that are really kind of normal and part of doing anything. You know, when someone goes to buy a car, they're perfectly fine, you know, giving someone their or their social security number. But when a lender asks for it to validate, um, you know, they get kind of iffy, like, oh, I don't need you to run my credit. You know, and then that next step when we're talking about repairing your credit, if, you know, the pre-approval doesn't come back positive, you know, it is, what can we work on to limit your expenses? You know, a lot of people don't want to say that they're living above their means, but that is a common trend in America. For every dollar an American makes, on average, we spend a dollar twenty. So, you know, most Americans are 20% over leveraged. So that's a situation we have to deal with. Um, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. You know, you have to look at your expenditures and see where you can cut from your budget to start putting some money away in savings or chunk down at some of those high bills you've incurred over time. Also, there's a lot of services that can help you remove derogatory remarks from your credit to also improve that score to get you closer to home ownership. So it's really about creating a platform for education and getting people to understand the market that they're participating in more so than it is, you know, there's this Bogart saying that you can't do this thing. Everyone can buy a home. You just have to position yourself to do it. Okay, so I, I want to ask this question, um, but I want to provide some context to it. Um, you know, right now we talk about in our economy, um, unemployment or employment is at the lowest, at the highest it ever been, you know. Um, it's I think it's around 3%, 3 to 4%, but... In the black community, it tends to be um, triple um, the number. You know, unemployment is is always around ten to fifteen percent in the black community, uh, for a lot of reasons. So my question would say, do you think more black entrepreneurs um, they would hire black people? It will help offset the constant high unemployment rate and the low wages um, to say that, you know, a lot of times uh, black men and women earn the least amount of money, one of the least amount of monies um, and, and do not earn enough for um, living wage. So with entrepreneurship, do you think black entrepreneurship, do you think we could change that scenario? Yes, I, I think there is a couple of factors you do have to understand about an entrepreneurship endeavor as it applies to employment. But getting to the heart of that question, I do think more Black entrepreneurs would lead to better unemployment rates in our communities. You know, from what I have seen, most African-Americans hire other African-Americans. 
which is fantastic. And it's exactly what we need to be doing. But there's two things when you go to employ someone that I think you need to set the expectation of. Number one, my new business or any even with a little bit of time in the business might not be able to compensate you at the same rate that a corporate entity would. You know, if I start a pizza restaurant, I might not be able to pay exactly what Domino's pays, but I need to pay a fair wage for the work and create an environment in which I am providing value to make up for that wage. You know, so we want to create the best wage possible. And with businesses, more often than not, your employees grow with you. And I think getting people to understand that expectation is a hurdle that a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, get in the face of. Um, and then additionally, profit, you know, how you pay your employees is directly related to the profit you're generating. You know, we as a community need to understand to pay our people the best and employ the most number of people. We need to be charging a fair price for our product and not undercutting. it. You know, unfortunately, we shouldn't be offering tons of discounts on the product or service we deliver because that negatively impacts our workforce. You know, yes, it takes money out of your pocket to run the discount, but also that limits the amount of money you're able to pay the people that work for you. So by discounting, you're devaluing the work that they're providing. Um, so I think Black entrepreneurs have a great opportunity in this country to help with unemployment and low wages, but it starts by understanding your business. You know, a good business supports the people that it employs. You know, and you back to what we initially started talking about is budgeting and that business plan. If you want to pay people, you know, $20 an hour and you want to hire 30 people, you need to have it in your budget that that is possible for them. You know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get misled saying they're creating jobs and opportunities and they can't afford to do that. So it's a two way street where we need to get into our communities and employ other African-Americans. But additionally, we need to make sure we're creating businesses that are cash flowing in a way that we can support that labor we're incurring. Yeah, so I'm going to. Um... I'm going to redirect you to give us um, on both sides of the business, or if it's the same, give us three steps that if you decide you want to become a caterer, what are the three steps? If you decide you want to become a real estate agent slash broker, what are the three steps? And we're going to have to wrap it up with um, soon after. So please take us through that process. Yeah. So, an organized process and it's going to be similar for both. So step one would be to create your business plan, write out on paper what you want to do as a business, what your goals are, what you expect your profits to be, what you're going to sell, how you're going to pay people and think big, you know, think about the future organization you're going to build. Your plan needs to be able to scale with your business. Um, step two, create a bank account, register your business, um, and then take that business plan uh, with you when you go to create those accounts and make sure you have that money saved up to start the business you're intending on starting. And then three, you have to start lead generating. Any business is only as good as the clients it serves. So to make any money, you need the clients to serve. So you need to create a plan, you create a business plan, create your economic model, and then go meet clients. So those are the three biggest steps um, for catering. Okay. Then in real estate, okay. Um, step one would be to study and procure your real estate license. Step two would be to affiliate with a brokerage. And then step three would be building that business plan and that economic plan and opening that bank account so that you are ready to pursue a career in real estate. 
Great. So give us give us a, a, a brief um, synopsis of what you do in the community. How do you give back to the community as an entrepreneur? And please state your age in that, because I don't think they know how young you are. <laughs> okay, so I am 29 years old. I'll be 30 in July. Um, but ways I give back to the community, we do a lot of educational seminars. So we do first-time home buyer and investor seminars. So we like to get out in the community and just give them the correct information. And when we do those seminars, we partner with uh, mortgage lenders, builders, financiers, credit repair specialists, so that everyone who you would need to talk to is in the same room. You know, we want to provide an education opportunity for people to ask the questions that they're bearing on their mind and get the correct information. You know, just because your family member said X, Y, or Z does not mean that's truly the case. So I love to create these opportunities where we can pull the community together, educate them properly so they can make informed decisions going forward. Additionally, we like to do a lot of volunteering. You know, I find that is a great opportunity to connect with people in a way that isn't so business minded because real estate or starting a business entrepreneurship scares a lot of people. You know, you have to conquer those fears um, to really pursue an entrepreneurship opportunity. Um, so we like to, you know, participate in clothing drives. We like to participate in food donation. You know, anytime there's a cancer walk or a 5K, we are always looking for opportunities to get out into our community, to connect with more people and starting with a common ground of, hey, we're here to support, you know, this 5K run. Hey, we're here to support the homeless, but really so, be talking to the people that are surrounding you yeah. while participating <clears throat> in those activities on what you can do for them and how they can succeed in this. Great. So, so this has been a very, very interesting interview, um, Mr. Jackson. And what I would like for you to do is um, it, just for information, if anybody's in your local area, how would they reach you? What What is, um, because once you, um, you're out, there and once you get this information here, this interview, how would people be able to reach you? Yeah, no, you can visit me online at downriverkitchen.com or on uh, downriverhome.com. You can reach out to me directly at downriverhome at kw.com or chefmerrick at gmail.com. And then if anyone wants to connect with me via text or phone call, just shoot me a quick email and we'll connect over the phone. I love to take calls and I love answering questions. I'm here to help in any way I can. And if you want to find me on social media, you'll find me on Instagram at your friend Merrick. That's at your friend Merrick. Or you can find me on Facebook at Merrick Jackson. Very good. This has been a very insightful and thought-provoking interview. So you just provided your information uh, to the public. Um, and so if... I hear your information and I reach out to you because I want free service or training and uh, I'm interested in working on your team as a realtor. Um, and so I would like to uh, for you to mentor me so I can get my real estate license and eventually um, be an understudy under your tutelage. Do you have that kind of um, uh, relationship with people out in the community 
to foster the next generation in the real estate market or to help them understand how the real estate market works? Yes, of course. So that is actually one of the core tenets to my role here as the team leader. Um, I am constantly looking to educate and recruit anyone who is interested in pursuing a career in real estate. So if you'd like to become a realtor here in North Carolina, I am a Keller Williams affiliate. So I would come, I'd have you tour my office. We'd sit you down in trainings and have a discussion about what your future looks like in the world of real estate. So I would love the opportunity if anyone is interested in real estate and wants guidance, mentorship, or coaching, I'm definitely available for that. Oh, that's excellent. So what I hear you saying is that you um, actually give back to the community through helping them to understand um, how to break that uh, generation of poverty, um, help, helping them to understand that the things that you do on uh, every day possibly could be a business or it could lead to entrepreneurship. Because um, one of the things that um, our black community struggles with is understanding what is out there that they can do to change their um, position, whether it's unemployment, whether it's needing more money. I think we're getting better at now seeking other opportunities, but, um, you know, generationally um, we've been tied to jobs and a lot of times been tied to a lot of low poverty jobs and, and we, uh, continue to uh, complete the cycle of poverty. So um, teaching people how to break that, that, that generational um, poverty is, is, is one of the ways is through entrepreneurship. So um, do you see it that way? Um, because you come from a very strong legacy. I think um, if I'm not mistaken, you come from, uh, Geechee background, you come from a very, um, very, um, strong and very, uh, determined family, uh, from your history on your father and your mother's side. So, um, and, and they're very, um, successful and they're very, um, intelligent people. So do you see, um, that journey of your family being a, any aspect of impacting you and 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 your siblings? Yeah, I mean, I come from a fantastic family. I thank God every day for them. You know, I believe your sphere matters, who you surround yourself with matters. You don't get to choose your family, but you do get to choose who you surround yourself with. You know, you have to, to be great, you have to walk hand in hand with great people. You need to find those allies that bring you up. You know, part of what I always love to say to people when they ask how I got to where I'm at so quickly is I walked hand in hand with great people and I was allowed the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of giants. And you'd be extremely surprised at how much leaders in your field would love to bring people up with them. They love to support and mentor. They love to coach. Um, but I think most people don't take the opportunity to go meet them where they are. You know, some of my greatest opportunities in life took me gaining up the courage to go talk to someone much bigger than me. You know, walking up to the executive chef of a restaurant and telling them that I want to work there, you know, walking into a real estate office and saying, this is where I'd like to plant my flag um, and then asking for help. You know, I think a lot of people look at it negatively like, oh, I don't need anybody. I can do it all on my own. But you can't. 
you know, this world is full of literal billions of people, you know, and not everyone is going to help you. But if you don't go in search of help, you're never going to get it. You know, I hate to use the adage of you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Um, but it's so true. If you go out to take opportunity, you go out and try and make a name for yourself. People are always watching and listening and then extending an olive branch or asking for help can get you in open doors that you'd never imagine. One of my greatest mentors, his biggest piece of advice is that relationships will take you to places money never can. You know, and I have lived that full force. You know, there is no amount of money you can spend that gets you a good relationship with somebody. It's showing compassion, showing ethics, showing care and showing trust that allows you to build ongoing relationships. Because if you are not in a place, you know, someone's got way more money than you, why would they listen to you? It's because you care. It's because you showed interest. You know, you can't pay a rich person to coach you. You can talk to them and build a relationship with them to get to where you're trying to go and see what those opportunities or what doors those opportunities open for you. That's that's a very good point. Um, I think we're like two steps ahead of where I wanted this interview to go. But I will say that <clears throat> what, what you just shared is um, definitely you, you talked about confidence. Really, you talked about um, building people so that they will have the confidence to have those relationships because a lot of times people are stuck in their own bubble and uh, entrepreneurship, it, it, it allows you to get outside of your box and to build something, to create something. So um, I'm going to just ask you to give me a breakdown of what, how do you think in both sides of your business, how, how does technology um the, the existing technology and the emergence of new technology is impacting your business and where do people have to be in order to engage in that technology? I think we live in the information age. You know, everyone can be as informed or as disinformed as they want to be. Um, and it really takes time to decipher that information and validate that information. I think we are technology increases exponentially. So the world we're living in is changing at a faster rate than we're used to. And I think it takes a lot of tact to navigate that, but anyone can do it. You know, my business for real estate operates mainly off a phone, you know, a phone and a laptop is all it really takes. Um, and for the catering business, very similar, you know, yes, you need a little bit more physical equipment, but getting up and running doesn't take more than a phone and a computer. So I think just making sure you are adapt enough to be able to type and send a text message will do wonders. And then really thinking about how you communicate with people. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect grammar, but you need to be timely. You need to be respectful. You need to know how to engage. You know, so a lot of what you need is not so much an education on the technology, so much as making sure that you attach yourself to the resources that you need. So, so um, I like to cover a, a lot of times. I like to cover what what are the risk factors? What are what do you? Because everybody have different risk factors. But what do you see as risk factors in your in your business? And how do you overcome those risk factors as you doing business in in the entrepreneurship field? Yeah. Well, first off, you know you have to think of the world around you a little bit differently. I view money as a resource. I view time as a resource. So money, or sorry, I view money as a tool and time as a resource. Um, my time, I can't get back. I have to protect my time with everything I can do. 
and I have to use money as a tool to move myself forward. Um, so using your time as a resource and protecting it, you need to time block out your day and reserve time for the important task. You know, I strongly believe in the Pareto principle of 80-20. 80% of the work you do produces 20% of your results and 20% of the work you do produces 80% of your results. So fixating on that 20% and protecting that 20% of your time that is going to produce the most of your results. And then what you spend the rest of your time doing, while it might not impact your results so greatly, that's the time you get to enjoy. Okay. So protecting your time is what I find is most important in learning how to allocate your time. Okay. And that's the biggest risk um, in terms of how you move through this process, right? Okay. Well, if you mismanage your time, you you know, weeks, months, and days go pretty quickly. Yes. You know, if you're running around scatterbrained, you're not really getting things accomplished. And to get results, you need to accomplish your task. Okay. So mismanagement is a high risk in your business for sure. Yes, I would agree with that. So um, how do you um, see yourself um, the next three to five years in Whichever business you so desire, will you be transitioning out of one into another or will you have keep both of the businesses and you have the three to five year plan? And and so as an entrepreneur, where do you see yourself taking your business in the next three to five years? So where I see myself, um, I will likely shift catering Um more so into venue operation. You know, I want to facilitate the spaces in which weddings and corporate events happen. And then additionally with the real estate business, I want to keep um, educating, empowering future homeowners into what is the best strategies for them. You know, I want to maintain a large rental portfolio so that I can use some of the profits to give back to the community. And really long-term, I want to be able to build first-time homes and provide homes for those who can't otherwise afford them. Very interesting. So I, I take it where you are, you're definitely doing a lot of network. Can you explain to the audience how important, you touched on it before, but how important is networking and following up with your networking um, possibilities in order to get your uh, get the job done? Yeah. So I look at networking coinciding with lead generating. Um, I'm a relationship based person. I'm in the relationship business. You know, I believe any you can do, you can go make a million dollars just about anything given the right relationships. So making sure you are connecting yourself and striving to grow each and every day, you want to be 1% better every day. You know, you want to be learning something, you want to be interacting with someone, you want to be gaining new experiences and new knowledge. Like I said, with time, protecting my time, I don't want a day to pass me by where I feel like I didn't accomplish everything I could have accomplished. You know, I want to be planting my flag in whichever opportunity I can and then paving a way forward from there. Um, So networking is super important because you never know who you're going to meet and how you can help them out. You know, I believe in meeting people where they are because you never know what you can learn from somebody, but you can definitely learn something from everybody. Very good. Um, So um, with with all the knowledge that you have acquired in these short years, 29 being very young, um, if is it possible, is it possible for you to um, take your broker? What do you see your broker um, abilities? How do you how would you take it to the next level? I heard you talk about rental properties. I heard you talk about um, creating a diverse portfolio. Um, I, I just I heard a lot of things. So 
if you have already um, ventured into that industry, what is it that the broker can perceive outside of that, the next level up as a young entrepreneur? And do you do you have mentors? Who are your mentors that will help you take that that next approach, that next level up? Yeah, so um, I do, you know, going with broker, I want to get into education, mentorship, and coaching. Um, I do have three business coaches. I have a financial coach. I have a leadership coach and then a personal development coach. Um, each of them focus on something different and they don't really cross over with one another as it pertains to leadership. You know, we, we focus on how I relate to people and how I lead people. You know, how do I understand someone's problems? How do I create an empathetic environment so that I, someone is feeling heard and I can take what I've learned from hearing them into helping better them? You know, when it comes to my financial coach, it is all about how am I managing my money and where am I putting it? How am I allocating funds and what is um, the advantage of doing something in a particular fashion? And then with my business coach, it's developing the plan for the next year, for the next five years, for the next 10 years on what I expect my results to be and what goals I need to hit to achieve those things. Um, so as I expand the business, it will be more so in growing the community that I surround myself with. And then additionally, providing mentorship and coaching to those who come behind me, because I could not have gotten to where I am without help and support of those that have mentored me to this place. Okay, so um, that's very good. Um, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, so do you have any information? Do you have any information that you would like for the audience to know besides your contact information or um, where you in North Carolina, where you live in Tampa, where you have lived? It, is there any last um, information you would like to share with the audience? Yeah, I, I want you to believe in yourself. You can do anything. Every human being is special. We are all immensely capable. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, we're just people. You know, most of them are under 60 years old. What you can do in this lifetime is only predicated for what you go after. So take on your dreams, conquer your hurdles, conquer your fears, and be steadfast in what you believe in. That's very good. That's very encouraging. So I'm going to say thank you. Um, this was a very, very good interview from a very young entrepreneur, um, Merrick Jackson from North Carolina. And he was via, he came through Tampa, Florida. Um, so he is our, our family. And so I am very happy to um, interview him today and uh, look forward to an update. So please feel free to come back and, and let us know what you're doing and have a wonderful day. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Miss Dr. Saba. It's been an absolute pleasure to join you and your audience today. And I look forward to connecting with you and them in the future. Thank you. Goodbye. They Bye. may not see the love in you, but love I do. And I'll stay right here. Mm. Sweet, sweet. Baby, life is crazy, but there's one thing I am sure of, I'm your lady, always baby, and I love you now and ever, sugar wishes don't change what is real or how it feels. 
is here. 